I've been praying that the Lord would meet you in this place this morning in a really unexpected and divine way. So if you'd pray with me, um, let's, let's actually read the text for this morning and then we'll pray. Um, but we're going to be in Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. If you've been with, with us for any length of time, you know we've been in the book of Matthew for the last year and a half. And so I thought uh, we'd fast forward from Matthew 13 to Matthew 28 this morning and just spend uh, this morning in the first 10 verses there in Matthew 28. So it says this. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Would you guys pray with me this morning? Just to prep this time, I, I say this most every week, but without the Spirit, void of the Spirit, what we're doing here this morning is worthless. And so I take this time to pray with us and just ask the Holy Spirit to come and to open up our hearts, to soften the hardest of hearts in this room and those who are just fearful and anxious and to bring your heart to a place this morning where you can hear his word. So let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for just the honor it is to be gathered with your church. I thank you for this group of people. God, I know that you're at work in their lives, in us, around us. Lord, you through us. You are moving. And Jesus, you are building your church. And what an honor it is to play any sort of role in that. God, I pray that this morning as we read from your word that you would speak to us. Lord, you know the condition of every individual heart in this room. And I pray, God, that you'd speak to them right where they're at. I pray, God, that you'd season this time with your spirit and you'd use it for your purposes, for your glory, to bring honor to your name, Jesus. We love you, Lord. We are grateful to serve a God that did not stay down, but a God that got up, that resurrected, and a God that has saved us. And we are eternally grateful, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So as followers of Jesus, Easter's sort of the center of our faith, because the resurrection in and of itself is at the heart and soul of what it means to follow Jesus. And we recognize that that this is a traditional time for many to come to a church building, um, but count it great joy that you are here this morning to celebrate with us. And we've been studying again through the book of Matthew, verse by verse, for the past year and a half. And we left off in Matthew 13 last week, and now we're fast-forwarding to 28, verses 1 through 10. I realize that we're skipping a lot, but I want to camp out in this one text this morning, this one gospel account of the resurrection story of Jesus. Uh, One of the things that you you realize, I think, early on as a follower of Jesus or somebody who has been in around the church is that at some point in your life, you have to do something with the resurrection. Like, you you have to do something with it. You have no choice but to make something of it. When we started studying the book of Matthew a, a year and a half ago, we realized 
um, what we realized was that Matthew, uh, as this writer, was bringing things to our attention, like deliberately bringing things to our attention so that we would notice them. And the gospel of Jesus Christ does this. It brings things to our attention that actually have to be dealt with. And so you have no choice. You have to do something with the resurrection because you, ha- you have to do something with the fact that there's been a critical mass, millions of people over the last 2,000 years who have claimed to encounter the risen Jesus Christ. You have to do something with this because this isn't just like a cult where there's one guy who had some experience with God and then a bunch of people who followed him because he had this experience and the whole thing just fizzles out. You literally have millions of people who have actually had encounters with Jesus and this is continuing on today. It's actually growing and it's expanding globally. Jesus is on the move. Like, if you don't know that, I ask you to open your eyes today because Jesus is doing amazing works amongst us today. And I feel so honored sometimes to look across the, the small seed part of the church that I get to be a part of and see the work that Jesus is doing, the change that he's bringing to people's lives, the transformation that's happening in people's hearts. Like he is building his church and as the word says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so you literally have these millions of people for 2,000 years that have claimed to have these encounters with Jesus. And it sort of leaves us in a place this morning where I think there's maybe one of three responses that we often hear people have to the resurrection itself. The first is this, is many people will just ignore it. Like, we can ignore like the, the, the critical mass, we can't ignore, or we can ignore, try to ignore the critical mass of people that have chosen to follow Jesus over 2,000 years. You, you can, if you want to this morning, just totally write that off and ignore this whole thing, and it's really easy to do. You can just move on this morning. You don't have to think about it, you, and let's not kid ourselves this morning because there's some of you who are here this morning that you might be this person. You literally come here to gather with Jesus' church on Easter, and you may still just be ignoring the reality of the resurrection. And so that's the first option. You can ignore it. The second is this. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you can accept it blindly. Like, you can accept it because you were raised with it. You can accept it because your parents expected you or your spouse expected you or your kids expected you to actually accept it or whatever the case. Many people just accept it blindly. And both ignoring it and accepting it blindly are stemming from the same place. It's either laziness or it stems from fear. And so some may be too lazy to even consider it deeply this morning or you may be that that you're just don't really care about it, and so you're not going to really do anything with it this morning. But at the core of it all is the reality that we are afraid. Many of us are afraid that it might actually turn out to be true. Or we're afraid that it might turn out to not be true. And so you can ignore it if you want to, or you can blindly accept it. But by far, the most popular option when it comes to this claim that Jesus was raised from the dead is to just blatantly reject it. And why is that? Because people don't rise from the dead, right? 
It's not possible. People don't rise from the dead, so I don't even have to worry about this because it's just not physical possible, physically possible. And so some of you may think that if this is at the center, at the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, the resurrection of Christ, then you don't even have to consider the whole thing because people don't rise from the dead. And as Paul states, and he, he says, if Christ has not been raised, then he says our preaching is in vain that your faith is in vain. Why are we even doing this this morning if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? It's pointless. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then why are we here? There's no point to this gathering this morning. And so if resurrection is impossible, then this idea of faith in Jesus has to completely be rejected. And I was thinking about this third response this week and thinking that if that's where you're coming from this morning, I just want to say one thing to you, and I think it's really important. The fact that resurrection is only impossible if God is impossible. So if it's possible that the creation that you and I live in was actually created, if it's possible, if it's possible that the laws of physics were actually something that were given to us by God, then it's also possible that those same laws can be manipulated, they can be shifted, that the same creator that made them can do whatever the heck he wants with them at whatever the point he wants to do it. It's possible. And here's what's crazy is that so far, despite man's best attempts to prove the impossibility of this creator, nobody has actually been able to. And so for, for those here who reject this bodily resurrection of Jesus simply be, because of the fact that resurrection in and of itself is just not possible, and all you'll accept is what you can see, what you can taste, what you can touch, and what you can measure, what you can examine, there's two things I want to tell you this morning. One, that's not really a surprise. And two, I think we need a little bit more of a stable foundation than that. So I'm going to geek out on you for a sec with some stuff that I've been reading over the past couple of weeks as I was kind of doing this deep dive into what people think of the resurrection. And I'm not, this will make me sound much more smart than I actually am. Um, it's a whole lot of scientific stuff, but there's a point to this. So the reason that I said at the beginning that it's not a surprise is because that's most often how our culture responds. Most often how our culture responds is they just reject it. And I love how Richard Foster put this. He says this, the materialistic base of our age has become so pervasive that it has given people grave doubts about anything beyond the physical world. Many first-rate scientists have passed beyond such doubt knowing that we cannot be confined to a space-time box. But the average person is influenced by popular science, which is a generation behind the times and is prejudiced against the non-material world. It's not a surprise to, to think this way because this is the prevailing thought of our culture today. The current popular culture is encouraging us towards like a strictly naturalistic perspective. I have to see it, I have to touch it, I have to be able to taste it and smell it. Like I need these physical attributes in order to believe that this thing is real. But the reason that I say you probably need a more stable foundation um, than that is because the current popular culture is actually already showing the limitations in its way of thinking. And so it, it, the crazy thing is that the scientific method is actually pointing us to its own limitations. I read an article um, this past week from an, an Israeli physicist, 
And uh, this guy was talking about a specific area of science and specifically quantum mechanics, which I know nothing about. But his quote was interesting. He said, what makes quantum mechanics so diabolical is that we're not allowed to measure it. And I was sort of baffled thinking about the fact that our modern scientific advancements have already led us to different studies that scientists don't have the ability to measure. They can't figure it out. And so if you're somebody who says, I'll only believe in what I can actually measure, then I think you might have a problem because science itself is already pointing us to things beyond what's measurable. Science itself is pointing to something beyond the laws of physics that, that we were taught or that we believed in. And so I, I found this really interesting. A couple years ago, some neuroscientists from Yale and Columbia universities claimed to have isolated what they're calling the neurobiological home for spirituality. So what they're saying is that they found the area of our brain that actually engages spiritually. This was a totally secular publication saying that they found the area of our brain where we get the sense of a connection to something that's greater than ourselves. That's pretty fascinating to me. Like as a Christian, as a Christ follower, it, to me it makes total sense, right? That it makes sense that if we have this creator God who actually created us for relationship with himself, that he would also create the capacity for relationship with him within us. I think it makes total sense. But, but in light of what we were talking about, what it means for us is that we have to be really careful with perspectives and worldviews that are strict, strictly naturalistic, like strictly what you can taste, smell, see, feel. Because here's the deal, that science itself is already pointing us to the fact that built into our brains is something that transcends us physically that people don't understand. Like built into us is something that's beyond what we can see and taste and touch and measure. So for us to back up on our plan that resurrection cannot happen because it's physically impossible, I, I think somebody would have to have a more stable argument. I think we're in for a lot of surprises in the next couple decades as science continues to advance more and more rapidly and people realize that they just can't figure it out. That there's something bigger at play. There's something greater than us. And so we can ignore Jesus' claims. We can accept them blindly. We can reject them on the, the basis that the, the, the fact that they're impossible. But let me ask you guys this question this morning that I want you to ponder. What if it's true? Like, what if it's true? And I know for some of you in the room this morning, that's a massive if. Like, what if the apparent design in this creation was actually designed? What if the physical laws that we live with were actually given to us by God? And what if God really did come for us in our mess? What if God really did come for us in our sin? What if God really did come for us and make a way for us to experience total restoration in him? What if? What if the hundreds of millions of people throughout history who have claimed to encounter this risen Jesus can't all be written off as crazy? What if? And what if the, the attempt to write them off without considering the claims they made is actually just a way for us to hide from something that at the core we're just afraid of? Because I think many people are just hiding behind their rejection of these claims. So we have to ask these questions. Why was the resurrection necessary? And what was the, the, the resurrection? That's funny. Um, 
And what was the resurrection for? And so this is sort of where I want to camp out for the, the rest of our time this morning. I want to spend a few minutes just asking those questions. If you're coming to this conversation with a big what if, and you're questioning, then I think that's awesome that you're here this morning, and awesome that you're questioning. And if you're somebody who's already convinced that Jesus was raised from the dead because you've actually encountered him, then there's actually some implications that you need to consider of what that means for your life as a result of the fact that this isn't a cartoon book that we're reading from. So let's jump into verse one. You guys good? Everybody's good? Okay. He's risen. I'm just going to say that every now and then just to like lighten the room a little bit. Um, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. All right, so Jesus is betrayed on Thursday. He's crucified on Friday. And Saturday was this Jewish Sabbath. It was the day of rest. But what a rough Sabbath day for his disciples. I mean, they just lost everything, and the disciples find themselves in maybe the most stressful situation that they've ever experienced. And then we come to dawn on Sunday morning, and the disciples are hunkered down, probably in fear of their lives, which is what makes what Matthew tells us so much more amazing. He says that two of the Marys went to see Jesus' tomb. The Gospel of Mark says that there was a woman named Salome who was present. The Gospel of Luke said that there was also a woman named Joanna that was there. And so we have this group of women who, as the disciples are all hunkered down in fear of their lives, this group of women separates themselves from the rest of the disciples. They leave as soon as they're able to, and they go find Jesus' tomb on Sunday morning. And I just love the courage that these women had to just go do it. I mean, their lives were at risk also, and they just go. But the leadership in these women, like, it's pretty amazing. The, the fact that they're sort of leading the way, they were courageous, they were brave. And Mark says that they bought spices and that they wanted to go anoint Jesus' body one more time before the rot set in. And then verse 2 says, And behold, there was this great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. Picture this. And his clothing, white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. That experience changes your morning, doesn't it? <laughs> Like, you're on your way to a place, and this earthquake happens, this angel shows up, flat, this looks like a flash of lightning. You've all experienced this before, haven't you? Like, we've all been there, done that? Like, okay. Um, but it changes things. This earthquake happens. It's the second earthquake that Matthew points out in connection to Jesus' death and resurrection. But it wasn't just an earthquake. Again, this angel shows up. This angel rolls back the stone in front of Jesus' tomb, and then this angel sits on this, this stone. And Matthew describes this angel's appearance like lightning. Like, honestly, I think this was what you say when you have no words to describe what the heck you just saw. It looked like lightning. Like, that sounds good, right? But it reminded me of Revelation 4, where John, John says, from the throne of God came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Like the lightning that this angel is described as appearing as tells us that this angel was literally emanating the presence of God himself. This wasn't just lightning. This was like God showing himself to a group of people. 
Like all that emanated from this angel showed Jesus' deity. It showed his brilliance, his character. It showed the nature of God. He was sent by God to represent God. But this angel wasn't just there to impress the women with the way he looked, right? The angel actually had a job to do, and it's kind of interesting. What was he there to do? Roll a stone. Anybody want that job? It actually makes no sense when you think about this. Because the stone in and of itself was not crazy. They say it would have taken a couple guys to move this stone. And so why would God create an earthquake? Why would God send an angel flashing like lightning? And then why would God have had the angel go move the stone and then sit on top of it? Like, logically, it doesn't really make any sense. But here's why. Because the one thing we know for sure is that what's being displayed here is the whole point of the story. Like the stone could have been moved any which way that God wanted. God could have literally disintegrated the stone, right? He didn't have to do it this way, but he had it moved in this big display because the display in and of itself, what he's, he was communicating something. This was the point. We all know that Jesus didn't have enough energy after he raised himself from the dead to move a stone himself, right? So tired. Like, talk about a massive thing. Resurrecting from the dead. Like, Jesus woke up in the tomb thinking like, oh, oh crap, it's sealed. You know, like, oh, there's no way I'm getting out of here. Like, how is this going to happen? Oh, God, you know, you think you can send a bro down to open this thing for me because I can't do it myself? No, it was, there was a purpose behind this. God's communicating something to his people through this whole experience. Jesus could have handled this whole situation however he wanted to, but a large part of the purpose of the, res of the resurrection was revelation in and of itself. God revealing himself to man. Like the, the Lord meant to communicate to us through his resurrection. And so there's this big show here because this angel doesn't move the, the, the stone to let Jesus out. Why did the angel move the stone? It wasn't so Jesus could get out. What was it for? So that they could see in. So that they could see that the tomb was empty. And it was this display to show that the tomb was empty, that death had been defeated. And so it doesn't matter if you're a skeptic or you're a cynic or you're a follower of Jesus already because the resurrection, no matter where you're at in the spectrum, was for you. It was for you. God the creator is actually wanting to communicate with you through this act of revelation. He's speaking something to us today, which leads to the second question. If God is revealing himself to us, what is it that God's revealing? Like a revelation of what? Display of what? And so I want to just give you guys three quick things from, this, from Matthew's account of the resurrection. And I want to approach it from a little bit different angle. So you have this earthquake, you have this angel looking like lightning, he moves the stone, and then you read this in verse 4. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. So this is pretty important, because up until now, what these women were doing was kind of a mystery, to be honest. Mark says that they buy spices, that they're going to anoint Jesus' body for burial, and that that's what they went to the tomb on Sunday morning to do. 
And it doesn't make sense because if you go to John chapter 19, it says that Joseph of Arimathea had taken the body of Jesus off the cross, had wrapped it in 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, had bound it up with all the customary spices to prepare Jesus' body for burial. So it had already been done. He had been honored in his death. Everything had been followed according to custom with Jesus' body, which tells us that these women may not have actually been interested in burial preparation. Maybe they just wanted to be with Jesus. These women had experienced abundant life with Christ. Like th- these women had known communion with the God through Jesus. And so Jesus was taken from them, and it didn't even matter if he wasn't alive. They would have given everything. They did give everything. They literally put themselves at risk just to be near to Jesus' body. And so these spices maybe were kind of an excuse for them to try to go to the tomb, to go be with Jesus. And what's interesting is that I think that Jesus has that effect on people. That all throughout the Gospels, we see this just as we do in our, in our own lives. That we see people making excuses to hate him, making excuses to write Jesus off. Sometimes, as we see here, even making excuses just to be near to him. And what I love about this is that these women... What were they expecting to find in the tomb? A corpse. A dead body. I mean, they didn't know the gospel. They weren't ready for resurrection, but it didn't even matter to them. They go prepared for that. And all that mattered was that they'd come into contact with Jesus, and they wanted more of Jesus. And, I, and hear me in this, in this this morning, because some of us are in that place today. Some of us have come into contact with the abundant life of Jesus in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and we just want more. Is there anybody in this room that I can hear an amen from? We want more of him. I want to be with him. But there's some of us that come in here this morning, and all you're expecting to find is a corpse. You walk into this room like you're just hoping to see a dead body, lifeless. You're hoping to see empty religion, tradition. You're hoping to see Easter bunnies and Santa Claus and Jesus. And that's what you expected. But the reality is you don't find that with Jesus' people. Why? Because there was a resurrection. And if there was a resurrection, then it means that Jesus is living. It means that Jesus is breathing, that he's actually alive. Like we're talking about a king who is living, breathing, and alive. And to be a Christian is not to follow a set of doctrines or dogma. That's not what it means to be a follower of Christ. It's not a sign on the dotted line to be a Christian type thing. It's not about practicing empty rituals and joining a club and being like everybody else. That's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's not what it means to have new life created within you, to be born again, to be transformed by the power of God himself. That's not what it means. To be a Christian means to follow the living, breathing, risen Jesus and allow Jesus to begin to lead in your life. Like he actually has something to say to you. He's got a way to lead you. He wants to give you direction. To be a Christian means that you follow his direction. That means that you let Jesus lead in your life. Or else what? All we have is a dead body in a tomb. So 
So just to see the contrast a little bit, notice that the guards, they're laid out like dead men. And so they're paralyzed with fear. They're laid out on the ground. And then this angel speaks to the women. And the women are laid out, uh, or the men are laid out as if they're dead. And the angel speaks to these women. And he says, don't be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. And the power of the resurrection is only applied to those who seek Jesus. That's it. Like, you want the resurrection power of Jesus? It's given to those who seek him. And these guards and these women are this amazing picture of the fact that it's fear that sort of draws this dividing line all throughout humanity, right? It's fear that draws this line between those that are in Jesus and those that are not in Jesus. Those that are living in the power of the resurrection and those that are not living in the power of the resurrection. Like this morning, I I honestly thought I'd come here with a bunch of statistics and, and give you guys a bunch of stats and studies to show you that our world is full of fear today. And I like, I was perusing the internet, how many of you know, there's plenty of statistics to prove that there's a lot of fear in our world today. Like, I, I was like, I'll, just, I'll, I'll bring the studies and I'll show them, you know, how fearful the world is. Like, that people actually are frightened, that people are anxious, that people are afraid. And the reality is that I don't need to bring anything to prove anything to you, because why? You know it. <laughs> you live in it. You know your friends and your coworkers and your family. You know your own experiences in life. And as many of you know, I've talked about this a lot, the fact that I, I love documentaries. And oftentimes, when my family's asleep and I can't sleep, because I'm like any night owls in the room, like I just can't sleep and I just lay in bed like this. <laughs> and so it's like time to read or watch a documentary. And so I turn on documentaries. And so about a year ago, um, I had seen, I was, it was late one night, and I was flipping through Netflix trying to find a documentary to watch, and I come across this show on Netflix that's titled A Call to Courage by a woman named Brene Brown. I don't know if you guys are familiar with her. Um, but I had heard her name, and I was curious about this show, and the, the description of this show was talking about dealing with vulnerability and shame and, and courage and empathy, and so I thought, this sounds really good, and so I turned it on, and you realize really quickly, like it looked sort of like a stand-up comedy act because she's on a stage talking to a crowd. I'm like, this is interesting. She's a brilliant person, an amazing communicator, written a bunch of New York Times best-selling books. She's had a TED Talk that's had millions of views online. And I'll preface this story with this. Don't email me or be upset if I misrepresent her because I'm only going off of a Netflix video that I've seen. I know nothing about her. But I thought it was really interesting in watching this video because she starts talking about vulnerability and she starts talking about courage. And I loved everything she had to say on the areas of vulnerability and courage and shame and and empathy. It was super insightful, really powerful. In fact, I, I agreed with most of the things that she had to say. But she was talking about how without vulnerability, there can be no innovation. Without vulnerability, um, there can be no creativity. And and that without vulnerability, there can be no integrity. And the fact that we can't have hard conversations without vulnerability, and that without vulnerability, you essentially cannot be courageous. And I thought it was awesome how she said that, that we're raised to think of courage as this valuable ideal, she says, and yet we're also raised to see vulnerability as a weakness. And it's no wonder that we live in a world that's full of people lacking courage. 
And so I was really digging what she was saying, but then she gets to this part and she starts making a point similar to what I was just stating with regards to the fact that the world is just gripped by fear. And she says, look, every time we're vulnerable, which we need to be, we're at risk, and those risks will harm us. And when we put ourselves out there, we're going to fall. It's going to hurt. And so if you love somebody, you're actually at risk. That person can seriously hurt you, or you could lose that person. So she talked about how men are afraid of weakness and about how even when things are going really, really well, we're often afraid that, um, that the other shoe is just going to drop at some point. And so we live in fear. And I related to so much of what she was saying, even that last part, because if there's one thing I struggle with, intellectually, I know who God is and I know this isn't his character. But my struggle sometimes is if life is too good, it's like, God, what are you gonna take from me? You know, it's just like, it seems too good to be true. So what's the thing that God is, is getting ready to take? Like, this just can't be possible. And I struggle with that. So I'm like, sort of on, on the, the, the edge of my seat, listening to what she's saying. I'm like, oh, I'm totally jiving and resonating with what she's saying. Like, I'm tracking with her, and I'm thinking, like, Brene, give me the solution. You know what I mean? Like, tell me what I need to do. And so here's what she said. Um, she, she gave sort of a, a, a few points. First of all, she said, you have to enjoy the ordinary moments. You've got to take mental and emotional snapshots and try to remember them as best you can. Enjoy those things. Then she said, second, just do the joyful things, the fun things, the frivolous things, the things with an immediate payoff. Do those things. And then she said, not in these words, but basically, stop being such a jerk to everybody. <laughs> stop taking your pain out on other people. Be vulnerable. And I really appreciated it. There's really great life advice that she gave, and I appreciate it. But here's what I saw that just like irked me, like it frustrated me, is that she just literally told tens of millions of people to deal with the reality of their fear by distraction. Like by focusing on other things. She said, we're all afraid, and then she didn't even touch on our fear. She didn't even really deal with our fear. So she tells us to distract ourselves from it, to try to enjoy and control what we can because there's so much in our life that's out of control. And I kept thinking to myself, like, how would like, such a brilliant woman like her not be able to come up with an answer or say something that speaks to the reality of our fears? And this is what I realized. It's because only in Jesus can our fears be quenched. And apart from Jesus, all we have is this pursuit of control in our lives. Like the, the resurrection is really a revelation. It's this revelation that Jesus defeated death and that freedom from fear is only found in Jesus. The, the resurrection is the revelation that fear no longer rules us. Amen? Like some of us are craving contact with the abundant life of God. Some of us want to experience what's real and what's alive, and we want freedom from fear. And so how do we try to get it? Control our lives. We take control of it. We try to control our circumstances, control the, the ordinary moments in our life. We try to package everything we can. We try to hold on to everything that we possibly can so that the fear hurts us a little bit less. And let me tell you this morning that that is the doorway to death. Like You can't control what will happen to you in this life. You can't control it. And every time we try to control what's coming, every time we try to control, we, we try to control because we're afraid. 
And ultimately, we're trying to be God ourselves. And this is what sin is. It's us stepping into the role that belongs only to God, the creator. And so in the resurrection, Jesus actually validates our fear by living, dying, rising for us. He says, you are out of control. And then he reveals this, but I'm not. And that's the God we serve. You're out of control. I'm not. That's why he continues to say, come to me. Come to me. And friends, like, we are living in an out-of-control world. But Jesus is not. He's not. He's perfect. He's totally in control. Death could not hold Jesus down. Nothing can. Which means in Jesus and in Jesus alone, there's nothing to fear. Like nothing can be taken from you. Your identity is actually hidden away in Christ Jesus. You're safe. And this life is not yours to control, yours to keep, yours to hang on to, yours to pretend like it's everything you have. Like our anxiety reveals that we're worshiping the wrong things or we're trying to do what only God can do. My struggles with anxiety... Those are some of the main points that I've learned in my seasons of dealing with anxiety. When I start freaking out and I can feel myself getting anxious, it's usually because I've elevated something in my life to taking the main seat. That's worship. Worship is literally giving priority to something. And so when you're anxious and you're fearful, the simple question for us to ask is, where is Jesus? Is this rotting corpse still laying in the tomb? Or is it gone? And if it's gone, what are you fearful of? The resurrection life of Jesus has been offered to you. So the resurrection is revelation that Jesus defeated death. And it's revelation that Jesus' words are life. And so the angel says, don't be afraid. I know you're seeking Jesus. And then verse 6, he's not here, for he has risen, as he said, come see the place where he lay. And I love these three words, as he said, these three little words, because fear grips us in this life because we don't have control over what's coming. But in the resurrection, Jesus offers us something that's better than control. He actually offers us light. He says, look, I know you're out of control. I know you're anxious. I know that you're afraid. I know that you're fighting to be God yourself. I know that it's best, the best that you can do. And I also know that you are dust. And there are things coming that, that, that are going to hit you like a freight train. There's no way around those things in this life. And so he says, I won't give you control because control only belongs to me. But I will give you myself. And I'll let you see what it is that I'm doing. And I'll flood your heart with my light. And I'll illuminate the path before you. And I'll let you see that when you put your foot out, that there's solid ground to be walked on. And that there's a rock that you can stand on. And that that rock is him. It's Jesus. And this is what Jesus offers us in the resurrection. Not control, but he offers us light. Light through his word that cannot be broken. And how do we know this? Because death couldn't even stop it. He is risen just as he said. Third and last thing. 
The resurrection is revelation that Jesus defeated death and that Jesus' words are light. And the last one is the angel, this. The angel says, he's not here. He says, come and see. And I love this passage. If an angel ever shows up to you and wants to escort you into an empty, empty tomb, what do you say? Like, yes, sir. You know, like, I'll take that opportunity. Sounds amazing. Nobody else has ever given me the chance to see this. Verse 7, he says, Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Fear and great joy. It's a whole different kind of fear. Like the fear of the world leads to fear and great anxiety. But the fear of the Lord leads us to fear with great joy. Because when we encounter the living God, we will fear. Like we're infinite, or we're finite. He's infinite. We're dust. Like he's holy. And we'll fear, but that fear will also be mixed with this great joy. And that's the difference. He goes on to say, and he ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet, and they worshiped him. The resurrection is the revelation that Jesus is God and that he's worthy of our worship. I'll leave you with this. We as humans worship all the time, whether you know it or not. We're always chasing something. We're always pursuing something. And whatever it is that we elevate in our lives to the point of pursuit is what we worship. And what it means to worship Jesus is to elevate Jesus above everything else to the point of pursuit and to worshiping him, to pursue him, to give everything to follow him. That's what it means to worship. And so in a second, we're going to sing some songs. We're going to close this service out with a couple worship songs. But realize this, that the only power that comes from singing songs is if those songs actually line up with the reality of our pursuit of Jesus. If we don't pursue Jesus, and then we gather once a week in a church building to sing about pursuing Jesus, but we don't pursue Jesus, all we're doing is enjoying the corpse. It's the same thing. There's no life in that. And, that's, and what you're coming to see then is just lifeless. There's nothing living and breathing. There's just flat-out hypocrisy. But when we pursue Jesus, when we worship him with our lives, when we elevate him to the point of pursuit above everything else in our life, we run after Jesus, and we let the living, breathing Jesus lead us and guide us by his words, which removes all of our fear, it removes all of our anxiety. There's no more death for us that can hold us back because it didn't hold Jesus back. And then we come together and we begin to worship, and we've got the power of the resurrection, and the Spirit begins to move, and he begins to breathe in this place, in and through his church. But let me tell you how easy it would be for us to come in here this morning, to crank up the volume, to hang a bunch of lights, squirt a little haze into the room, and create this intense worship experience for you, and you'd all feel it, you'd tingle, like it'd be this amazing emotional sensation, but the whole thing could be worthless without elevating Jesus. <laughs> 
Everything else that we worship in this life will fade and it'll disappoint you. It'll rust, it'll rot, it'll cheat, it'll break. It'll let you down except the resurrected Jesus. He won't let you down. I started with this, but like I have no idea where you guys are at this morning. But I literally have been praying for you all week. Faces of people that I do not know. And knowing that Jesus wanted to meet you in this place and not just say hi and give you a high five and a good feeling, but to engage your heart with the resurrection power of Jesus. To literally transform you and change you. To watch all your fears and your anxieties diminish as you begin to place them in their right seat and elevate Jesus into his. And so as we sing these songs, I say this every week. It's not Christian karaoke. It's easy to stand there, read the words on the screen, bounce to the beat, even give a clap every now and then. But my encouragement to you is that what we're doing when we worship is we're elevating him. And this day especially, above all others, is the day that he deserves to be elevated, to to be acknowledged as on the throne, the king of our lives. Like, where would we be without him? And as I think about our church, I'm like, if if our church is void of Jesus and void of his spirit, then I'm leaving those doors and I'm never returning again. Because I want the spirit of the living God to do a work in us, in our city, to meet people where they're at. And he's here today, meeting you where you're at. Some of you have known Jesus for years. And the only Jesus you've known is the rotting corpse inside the tomb. And that's all the acknowledgement you've given him. Man, he's gone. He's not there. And he's offering you something more than a glimpse at a rotting corpse in a tomb. Church, how will the world come and see the empty tomb? How will they see it? Like, we could go to Israel. I could show you the three tombs that they think it is. We could be like, oh, I think it was that one. Like, come and see. You know, maybe that one or maybe it was this one. And the reality is it might not be any of them. But how is it that the world will see the empty tomb? They'll see it in you. Because the resurrection life of Jesus, what he left you in his resurrection, is in you today. And as we leave these doors, it's now about us going and showing, right? Like, let's show the world the empty tomb. That he's risen, he's risen indeed. That the resurrection life of Jesus, this isn't just about platitudes. And I just don't go to church so I can clap and sing songs and like play the games and do all the churchy stuff and follow the traditions and do what my parents said and what my friends told me to do and yada, yada, yada. I do it because I want to engage the living God. And if you're here this morning and you want to engage the living God, I think the living God wants to engage you. And so I'm gonna ask you to stand and I wanna pray for you. And we're gonna sing. And when we sing, you know, your love for Jesus will be known by the volume of your voice. No, I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. (laughs) I would challenge you this morning to elevate Jesus. He's on the throne. He's out of that tomb. And he's offering you new life this morning. And we get a chance to sing to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe to worship his name. Here this morning, you've never met Jesus. Some of you just got drug here. You know, this is kind of curious. You know, I'm, maybe I'm kind of interested. What if this is true? Man, I'd love to have a conversation with you. But very simply, the word says, 
if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus, confess that he's king, believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. And the very simple thing is that if you want him, you don't have to go looking for him to find him. He's here. Call out to the name of Jesus and surrender your life to him. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you for your church. I thank you for this amazing day. Lord, what an honor it is to celebrate your resurrection, um, God, and not just to commemorate your resurrection, but God, to just stand here with gratitude with regards to the implications of that for us. And I'm changed, I'm transformed. This mouth that sings and this heart that cries out are different than they once were because they believe that Jesus is king. And so I pray, Jesus, as we sing these songs, that you would stir our hearts up. And I ask, Lord, that as we leave these doors this afternoon, that we be the ones to carry the resurrection of life of Jesus with us and to show people the empty tomb, to give them a glimpse of the work that only you can do in their life as you've done in ours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.